0: This is episode number 493 with Anjali Srivastava, data scientist, artist, and producer of the Vastava YouTube channel. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John a chief data scientist and best-selling author on deep learning. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. You are in for a treat today with the fun, intelligent, and vibrant Anjali Srivastava. Anjali is an expert in data science visualization. She has used this skill set to engineer visualizations of data in production systems in a number of roles. We'll talk about that technical content in this episode, including her favorite tools and applications, but we'll also discuss in detail Anjali's mission to bring a face to data, which she accomplishes through journalism as well as through her brilliant YouTube channel focused on applying data analytics to pop culture themes. Anjali holds dual degrees from the prestigious University of California, Berkeley in data science, as well as in industrial engineering and operations research. A recent graduate shall fill us in on what a data science degree curriculum is like at a top university like Berkeley, as well as how anyone can access their world-class data science lectures online. Today's episode is well-suited to listeners at any stage in their data science journey, whether you're considering a move into the field, have recently become a data professional, or are a seasoned pro. All right, you ready for another awesome episode? Let's go. Anjali, welcome to the show. It is so great having you here. How you doing? Where in the world are you?
1: I'm doing great, thank you for asking. I'm currently in Sacramento, California.
0: Nice. I guess you're from there, um, mm-hmm. but you studied at Berkeley, which is yes. how far away is Berkeley from Sacramento?
1: Ooh, it's about two hours on a good day, traffic permitting.
0: All <laughs> uh, right, not too bad. Um, and so you're you've just finished a bachelor's degree at Berkeley, and yes. the pandemic is kind of ruined your educational experience, I guess your senior year. Uh, a little
1: bit. Yeah, you could say that. Well, I finished two degrees, actually. But, oh. um, yeah, a Bachelor of Arts and a Bachelor of Science. Arbitrary oh. distinction that they make, but yes. So I have a Bachelor of Arts in Data Science, because Data Science is an art. And I have a Bachelor of Science in Industrial Engineering and Operations Research.
0: Wow, uh, that is a really cool degree. Thank you. Or set of degrees. <laughs> uh, I did it Thank, you.
1: Thank you. <laughs> I mean, yes, there is quite a bit of overlap between the two. So I think it's fair to say like, I did get like a degree's worth of education. And I just decided to take on multiple classes. <laughs> but yes, uh, the pandemic definitely was challenging in a lot of ways, particularly in online learning. Um, I think one thing that I say a lot is like, I was a senior, so I was already going to be a bad student because of senioritis, (laughs) but like online learning just made it doubly. So it was very, very hard to stay focused even with the amazing educators at Berkeley. So uh, yeah, bit of a bummer, but.
0: Well, I wasn't even thinking about the education part of being in (laughs) a (laughs) university. I was just thinking about how like university is this once in a lifetime experience to meet people and have fun and you can't really do that over a season. Oh,
1: yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, we missed a lot out on that, particu- particularly the fact that my 21st birthday was about a month no. after university went on to lockdown. So we missed out on that as well as like every single one of my roommates and like fellow friends in college, we were all turning 21 in that year. So it was just like a string of disappointments, but like... Mm. I mean, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, all of that doesn't really matter. I'm still very happy that I got to finish out my degree. And I still think that I got a worthwhile experience out of it. I think learning through these remote challenges, I don't know, something everyone had to do. I think Berkeley made the most of it, especially with our commencement. I think they did a lot of nice things.
0: That's great. Your commencement was virtual as well?
1: Oh, yeah. I had, I oh. think I actually had like four different commencements just because of, again, my two different your degrees. Your arts
0: degree, your science <laughs> degree.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I think it was really sweet. They like, had like our own slides. They read out our names, which they typically don't do at commencement. Like my family in India was able to join. So it was oh, actually nice. That would that have is been able nice to be possible otherwise.
0: So, yeah. Now, for our international listeners, you might be wondering the significance of a 21st birthday in the United States. In the United States, the drinking age is 21, which is crazy, I don't know, like, it's draconian. And, you know, in other countries, you know, in the UK, I think most European countries, it's 18 or younger. In Canada, in most provinces, it's 18, a couple are 19, Mm -hmm. and it's crazy. It should be 21 before you can legally drink. Anyway, so yeah. yeah, too bad that you weren't able to do that with yeah. uh, well, friends there, but I'm sure the people you were close with, you still you can meet up with in real life now.
1: Yeah. Close. And I had, a, my dad and I, we went to Safeway. I bought my own <laughs> hard cider for the first time. <laughs> it was story. very exciting. Yes.
0: Well, that's fun. Just a
1: few blocks away from my house. It was a nice little walk. <laughs> Perfect celebration.
0: Um, cool. Well, so how, I should explain to the audience how we know each other. Yeah. So, um, so we're filming early July, and mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, someone named Harpreet Sahota and someone else named Kate Strashny, uh, both of whom have been guests on the Super Data Science Show uh, this year. So, Harpreet was episode 457, and Kate was episode 441. They hosted the first, I assume, annual Data Community Content Creator Awards. And Harpreet in the run up, he made a post saying, hey, uh, this, this award show is coming up and the winners are determined by voting. So it's a fan favorite kind of voting thing, kind of like the People's Choice Awards. And he specifically mentioned a number of amazing data content creators that you might want to consider voting for, that he would certainly consider voting for himself. And so I went through all of the names in this list and I came across you. And so I go through to your LinkedIn profile, so go to Anjali's LinkedIn profile mm-hmm. and it looks so interesting. So we're gonna get into all of this, but Anjali has this journalism background, but she's pursuing, at the time we're pursuing now, have completed yeah. dual degrees in data science and uh, industrial operations?
1: Industrial engineering and operations. Industrial research.
0: engineering so and operations. Kind of research. a mouthful.
1: Oh. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, and had experience, kind of early, early career experience in data science roles, data visualization. And I thought, wow, Anjali would be a really cool guest to have uh, come on and explain kind of this early career journey. And we do have tons of interesting content. I have so many great questions about this early career journey that I think the audience is going to love. But Mm -hmm. remember that Anjali was originally referred to me indirectly by Harpreet mentioning that she's an amazing content creator. So on her profile, I can't really figure that out. And so I actually, I messaged Harpreet and he pointed out to me your YouTube channel. So Mm -hmm. Anjali has a YouTube channel. Um, It's the back part of her last name, Vastava, which actually explained that to us. I think it's really interesting. So yeah. your last name is Sri Vastava. Your YouTube channel is Vastava. Yeah, explain what those words mean. Sure, yeah. Happened.
1: I mean, so the original <laughs> impetus for it is like Vastava is just my GitHub username. So like initially <laughs> I didn't put a lot of thought into it. It was just like, it was there for the taking. But like I came to realize like after talking with my dad, like, oh, Vastava is actually the Sanskrit translation of either truth or fact which is really kind of aligns with what I'm doing. It's kind of tangentially related to data science, this idea of like objective truth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I was thinking about it more like Vastava was like always something that I had in my mind. Cause like when I was younger, I would often cut off the Shri in my name because Shri is an honorific. It's like loosely translated as Mr. So like my last name could be thought of as Mr. Vastava. And I used to be Mr. like, truth. I don't, yeah, Mister Truth, <laughs> a great superhero name, but doesn't really fit me. <laughs> um, yeah, you can't so, lie to him. <laughs> exactly. So I cut off the "shri" because I'm not a Mister, obviously. So I just thought it was kind of funny that like those three sort of methods or like explanations for the name coalesced into like this one word that I think a lot of people when reading it just think it's like random syllables, but no, it actually has three different meanings to it. If you think about it.
0: Yeah. Eliminating unnecessary distractions is one of the central principles of my lifestyle. As such, I only subscribe to a handful of email newsletters, those that provide a massive signal-to-noise ratio. One of the very few that meet my strict criterion is the Data Science Insider. If you weren't aware of it already, the Data Science Insider is a 100% free newsletter that the Super Data Science team creates and sends out every Friday. We pour over all of the news and identify the most important breakthroughs in the fields of data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. The top five, simply five news items. The top five items are hand-picked, the items that we're confident will be most relevant to your personal and professional growth. Each of the five articles is summarized into a standardized, easy-to-read format, and then packed gently into a single email. This means that you don't have to go and read the whole article. You can read our summary and be up to speed on the latest and greatest data innovations in no time at all. That said, if any items do particularly tickle your fancy, then you can click through and read the full article. This is what I do. I skim the Data Science Insider newsletter every week. Those items that are relevant to me, I read the summary in full. And if that signals to me that I should be digging into the full original piece, for example, to pore over figures, equations, code, or experimental methodology, I click through and dig deep. So, if you'd like to get the best signal-to-noise ratio out there in data science, machine learning, and AI news, subscribe to the Data Science Insider, which is completely free, no strings attached, at superdatascience.com dsi. That's superdatascience.com dsi. And now, let's return to our amazing episode. So I check out your YouTube channel, and it's amazing. I absolutely love the content. I had to get you as a guest on the show, reached out to you on LinkedIn, and was delighted that you were keen to be on. I think this is going to be such an interesting episode. So some of the more popular videos on the channel are TikTok mansions during the pandemic. <laughs> so you've <laughs> kind of, it seems like you've found this niche of uh, social media drama, as you described it.
1: Yeah, um, You're doing data analysis of social media drama. Important caveat, yes. I'm not just talking about it. <laughs> I'm applying my background in data science. Yeah, so
0: that's the, so lots of grabbing data where you can get it, mm-hmm. putting in charts, you make tons of custom graphics and you overlay them. And these are like, long, detailed videos, which I think is great. You know, tip, like typical run times, 10, 15, 20, 25 minutes. Mm-hmm. And you can really dig into the data around pop culture events. Mm-hmm. So this TikTok Mansions one I know is big. Uh, one that you clearly put a lot of effort into and is a lot of fun uh, to go through is a Star Wars Legends versus Canon with data science. What does that mean?
1: yeah so the star wars universe has like two separate timelines so like before disney acquired star wars there was like this massive sprawling like universe of like books comics like radio specials tv shows movies that was called the legends timeline or like it wasn't called anything really it was just called the timeline (laughs) then when disney acquired it they decided to scrap all of that and like reprint it as the legends timeline and then they established their own canon timeline so like And it made a lot of sense why they did that. Like when they wanted to make their new movies, they could like have a clean slate and not have to be like tied down by all of this like backstory. But what I ended up doing, which I did this crazy intensive project where I like scraped like every single event on like the star Wars, like Wikia pages of like every event that happened in the legends timeline and every event that happened in the canon timelines. And I like compared the two to see like how different are they? Um, And there was like a lot of interesting insights in that. And I put a lot of, Time into
0: that: <laughs> Yeah, it's clear. I've also seen yeah. uh, I've also seen some visualizations of it. So mm-hmm. your GitHub account, vustava.github.io, yeah. audience members can go there and a lot of the visualizations that you use in your YouTube videos are there as kind of standalone visuals. Yeah. and the, the timeline that you put together and the graphic that you put together for the Star Wars uh, video is epic. Thank you.
1: Yeah. It's just, it's an interactive website. You can scroll. Lots of fun things pop up. There's like little lightsaber switches that I like coded using CSS. Uh, yeah. Um, it was all coded in D3, the interactive data visualization library. I've been having a lot of fun with it lately. So
0: nice. Yeah. D3.js is a JavaScript library. Yep. Um, so, yeah. So, you obviously, oh, I mean, I guess we should dig into this a little bit now. We've had <laughs> a couple of roles as a data visualization engineer. Mm-hmm. and so obviously in that kind of role oh man i guess we should talk a little bit of it, a bit about it now because it's just going to be a tease to the audience if we don't so when you're <laughs> in a role like a data visualization engineer evidently and this makes a lot of sense to me now that i think about it you need to develop some expertise in things like html and css and mm-hmm. d3 um so yeah so Maybe, maybe the mm-hmm that you just gave me should be enough for now. We'll come back to those rules and talk about the specific tools and kind of techniques that you specialize in. Okay. Um, but we'll kind of wrap up with YouTube. Bit. So yeah, this, I love this angle of data analysis of pop culture. The videos mm-hmm. that you make are so fun and relatable, but also, uh, you know, there's some technical elements, huge amounts of effort go into making these. So anyway, yeah, really glad that you're here on the show. Mm-hmm. You. and you even do have a couple of data science videos or so you have a couple of videos on your youtube channel that are not just kind of analytics but even some data science so you have a music genre classifier video What's that?
1: yeah on? yeah yeah so there's this um very famous internet persona recently turned musician named corpse husband and like Everyone was freaking out about his music, but no one could really fit, like what genre it fit into basically. So right. like that was sort of like the perfect, I was like, oh, this is perfect. It's like an internet story, where, which is most of my videos. And also like I can make an AI classifier of like music genres, which is like a classic project that I think a lot of us have done at some point. So um, that is really, I think, honestly, it's the only video I have on my channel that uses machine learning in any capacity. Which is kind of surprising because I think a lot of us, when we think of data science projects, we immediately go to AI, ML. But like, really, what I've tried to do with my channel is like stay grounded in like data analysis, like data scraping, like concepts that are more easily explainable to people who might not have a background in yeah. data science. Cause like, we have to be honest, the vast majority of people don't have a background in like data science or even like basic, like, or basic sure. statistics at all. Yeah. So like, I have to make sure like what I'm doing is not only like technically robust, but is also like can be comprehended by everyone, which is why I think I like lean towards doing visualizations, because I think like visualization is the way that you can communicate data science findings to anyone because like everyone can
0: see. Totally. <laughs> it makes perfect sense to me. I I love that angle. Something that we were talking about before the show is that as your data science career develops, there will probably be opportunities where you see machine learning things, data science things that you're doing in jobs where you're like, wow, this is really interesting. And we yeah. have got to make a video about this. Actually, that brings me to a, really, to a question that I'm mm-hmm. really curious about. So how do you get your inspiration for particular topics? How do you decide what you're going to do a video on? There's a huge variety of topics covered here.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have a long list of ideas that like, and I pull from like, Every experience about like whenever I'm watching a movie, I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Um, the so like the TikTok mansions video that you mentioned, like that was only because like I was addicted to Twitter <laughs> and I like I'm sure um people know Taylor Lorenz. She's a New York Times reporter who is like her whole beat is like covering influencers and like TikTok and those things. And, like I followed her and like literally it seemed like every day there was like a new mansion popping up. And like, I was like so confused because I was like, "Why are people doing this? Like, literally in the heat of pandemic." What is it? You need
0: to explain that to us. What is it?
1: That's true. So a TikTok mansion, mansion. Excuse me, is when a bunch of teenagers move into a mansion together to like create content together. There's a bunch of different names for it. I think it's also called like a content house, which might make more sense to the mind. Like basically, like a bunch of famous people from all across the country will move together. And so they can, like, more easily collaborate with one another and create TikToks together. The problem with it is, like, this was obviously happening during the pandemic. And, like, also, these are a bunch of teenagers who are not necessarily the most responsible and have come into a lot of wealth recently. So there were a lot of videos going around. What could
0: go wrong?
1: Exactly. So there's a bunch of teenagers,
0: unexpectedly (laughs) very wealthy and famous living together in the we'll middle of a pandemic
1: yes without parents right and <laughs> oh so like i like often like and most of these were in la like a city where none of them had grown up so there were all these videos of like these massive parties and like it got really big i think one of them like the governor had the gov- or the mayor excuse me the mayor of la had to like shut down the water and the electricity at the house because they were just oh having, like too goodness. much of a public nuisance so there was like a lot of like interesting stories to be told there. And I just wasn't seeing that angle a lot on the internet. So I decided to put my data science hat on, or not necessarily my data science hat on, but look more of my geographer hat on, because that actually, <laughs> that was my concentration GIS and technologies within the data science major. So oh, I no mean, like, yes, it was. I really love maps and random geography skills. So, um, yeah, what's
0: GIS? Geo information systems.
1: Yeah, yeah, geo
0: geographical information. Yeah,
1: geo information systems or geo information sciences are the two acceptable acronyms. But yeah, (laughs) I made this interactive map. It's also on my website if you want to check it out. You can scroll; it's super interactive. You can click the dots. I'm actually quite proud of that one. Also,
0: (laughs) have you ever had one of your YouTube projects overlap with an academic project?
1: Oh, I can't say that I have because I started my YouTube channel in summer when I wasn't taking classes. So that wasn't really uh, possible. And then in my senior year, I don't know. I, I think just a lot of my projects, it, it didn't work out that way. But
0: So you didn't, you didn't write, write a paper for it. your GIS for your GIS degree about TikTok mansions?
1: I did not, unfortunately. <laughs> I think my professor would have laughed me out of the room if I did, but. <laughs> I don't
0: know. Maybe. Um, all right. So that's really cool. Um, I'm sure we'll end up talking about the YouTube channel again.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Lots, of interesting, uh, lots of interesting aspects to you, Anjali. Another one that we talked about a little bit before the show started was that you are into yoga. And it was interesting. So you mentioned to me that through the pandemic, you' kind of fallen off a yoga wagon that you'd kind of lost your routine around that
1: mm-hmm. and that's
0: interesting to me because in episode four seventy three with Anima Anand Kumar, who is a prominent machine learning researcher she's at Nvidia, she is a professor at Caltech uh, she had the opposite experience so mm-hmm. she she grew up in oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm blanking on the name of the region in India that modern yoga comes from um, anyway i it's embarrassing that i can't remember it but she's from that region there's all kinds of listeners like shouting it at their uh at their podcasting yeah app. Uh, oh <laughs> what can i do it's live um so despite growing up in that region of india she had never really taken up very much yoga but when the pandemic happened she told us in the podcast episode that she'd re she got into it and that it became a really great um, way of centering and kind of dealing with this weird experience of the pandemic. I think especially the beginning of the pandemic was like so bizarre. Now we're just used to it. I just, I'm indoors all day. It's (laughs) like, it's like, (laughs) yeah. um, But yeah, but you kind of went the other way.
1: Yeah. No, the reason I fell off is, well, first of all, like I was really into yoga at Berkeley and there were a lot of classes that I would attend. Like, that were free through like you know the Cal ID so um there were a lot of like very talented instructors at the gyms that I like formed relationships with so obviously COVID did not permit that to continue but like the second probably more important reason I stopped doing yoga is like we actually got a puppy during quarantine and he had just (laughs) been consuming all of my time so like I having a puppy is like Uh, honestly requires a lot of cardio exercise like every day because he he just is like this ball of energy um even now like 12 months later he's one year old now so uh yeah and there's a couple of times when mom and i have like tried to sit down and do yoga and like you just can't do it without the dog like butting his face in and wanting to be a part of it so
0: you can only do two poses down dog and puppy pose
1: yeah literally
0: Um, so, all right, let's talk about the puppy for one second. What kind of puppy is it?
1: He is a black lad. (laughs) His name is CJ. He's quite big. Lots of energy. Yes. He is almost as heavy as I am actually. He just passed 97 pounds, (laughs) Wow. he's a big one. Yeah. Definitely not able to carry him anymore, but
0: (laughs) (laughs) that would be incredible. Yeah. All right. So super interesting. Mm -hmm. I'd love to learn these bits about kind of your personal life, but Mm -hmm. I do also want to get deep into the data science. So Mm -hmm. let's do that by talking about journalism. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, So you actually, so this is going to make sense to the listener momentarily, Mm -hmm. but Anjali identifies as a writer and you started your career in journalism. So I guess one of your first, jobs was at the Daily Californian. First of all, you're going to have to tell us a bit about that. Mm -hmm. I guess it's a newspaper. Mm -hmm. Um, And so at the Daily Californian, you were assistant news editor and then later senior staff reporter. So um, tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I would hesitate to call it a job, even though so <laughs> daily Cal, the, the, the Daily Cal is a student newsroom first of all I, should oh.
0: I I will
1: say it was very demanding and definitely on par with the job, but like I yeah, I just don't think that terminology is necessarily accurate. but the fact Fair that much. it is a it's a daily newsroom, which means we are pumping up stories every day. So like particularly when I was an editor, it was like a like a six day a week job. I was paid for wow. it. so like yes, that was. It was a very intense time of my college career. um, And I learned a lot there. And that newspaper has like turned out a lot of very successful journalists, like for good reason. Like there's really no better training than like being on the clock 24 seven, like, especially in a place like Berkeley, which is like, like both the city and the university, there's so many big things happening every day that like, it's really impossible to like not find those big news stories. Like you could just trip and you'll find like some like big protest or like some like like lawsuit involving a professor or something like there's, it's just a campus full of very notable people. So there's always a lot of notable stories, I think. Um, So that was really a formative part of my college career in the sense that I learned how to like, navigate these sort of like very big stakes situations and also like be comfortable talking to people who like, have like wildly different like backgrounds and stories Mm -hmm. and like perspectives. But yeah, no, the reason I say I'm a writer first in my bio is because like, even though like, like the way that journalism and data science intersect for me, at least is like when I'm doing data analysis, I'm always trying to like find the story in the data and like trying to put together a narrative that makes sense with the analysis. And I think that leads like really nicely into my YouTube channel. Like I've always been really interested in like not only finding the questions that can be answered with the data, but like, why does that question matter? And like, what does that mean to people? Right. So like, I think in data science, like, a lot of the times, like, these stories, like, not these stories, but our analysis in our projects can, like, come off as very clinical. And I think there's been a push in academia recently to, like, make ourselves, like, recognize those more human elements or, like, inject some sort of, like, emotionality into it, whether that's through, like, interviewing people or just, like, doing background research on the people that you're analyzing. Um, and that's probably, like, more relevant in demographics than it is on, like, doing, like, a machine learning <laughs> project for, like whatever tech company. But um, I think that like skill of being able to like, put together a story, whether like, it's through like, hard data, or whether it's, through, it's like the facts of an interview and like, parsing through facts that you find from journalism, like, that's a very important skill for almost everyone. And like particularly for data scientists,
0: even with a lot of machine learning algorithms, like, mm-hmm. they, you're building them for people, they impact yeah. people. And, we probably should be as data scientists spending more time getting to know the end users who in a lot of cases could be very different Mm -hmm. from us. Right.
1: And I think like my goal with my YouTube channel was like to put a face to the data, like even though like the ideas and projects I'm analyzing are very low stakes, like the grand scheme of things. And that's by design, like I'm intentionally picking low stakes things because I know like, I'm not I don't have like peer review processes. I don't have anything. This is just like me in my bedroom doing like random analysis projects. No one's going to really care if I screw up. Your online. YouTube
0: channel doesn't have peer review.
1: <laughs> I do not, unfortunately. Just a 22-year-old in my <laughs> parents' bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, sometimes like I like I think like I do have a video on COVID. I do have a video. I had a, a very fun video like making a drinking game for the presidential debates like right before the election <laughs> yeah. um, using like, uh TFIDF and those sorts of things. But you no, um, kidding. Yeah. That was actually. Yeah, so TF
0: TFIDF term frequency, inverse document frequency. It's a yes. way of identifying the most uh, likely like to be unique relevant. Unique phrases.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. Like like common phrases that aren't just like the A I et cetera. Like unique and common. I'm cool. very impressed that you knew what that stood for. I was like well, to remember.
0: I remember. I work on natural language models all day. Okay, okay, That's good. I've got to know. Yeah,
1: good to know. Okay, <laughs> so yeah, that was like. I so I guess those videos can be considered high stakes, but yeah, like e- even like for like low stakes projects like the ones I'm doing, I think it's valuable to have someone who like knows the inside and like can explain in like English language, you know, so like everyone or I shouldn't say English in language like. <laughs> Ideally, (laughs) so like most people can understand.
0: Yeah, in natural language as opposed to zeros and ones. Mm -hmm. um, Having
1: a human interpreter for the data. (laughs) Yeah,
0: very cool. I really like that idea of putting a face to data, and you're definitely doing that with your YouTube channel. I think it also, especially, appeals to probably generally a younger audience um, that might. Surprised? Oh, yeah. Do you have you have a sense of your demographics, your audience? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So my my biggest um, like demographic is like twenty five to thirty five, and then Mm. like my second biggest is fifteen to twenty five. Very old people. Could you imagine people as old as thirty (laughs) five? Well, when you hear young people on YouTube, my mind goes to like eleven to fourteen year olds, and like those people are not like those kids are not going to be watching my content.
0: But yeah, so I
1: guess like young people in the sense of like people my age, yes. 18 to 35.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, very good. Uh, yeah, on the younger end of an entire lifespan, but yeah, uh, maybe not for you.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, younger sense in terms of career, but not like, because when I hear young, I really think like YouTube yeah. kids. I'm not, I'm not I making understand. content for the kids.
0: <laughs> um, so you were working at the Daily Californian mm-hmm. while you were at UC Berkeley?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Okay. So we've already talked about the UC Berkeley um, uh, degree a bit, but very interesting, Bachelor of Arts in Data Science, Bachelor of Science Mm -hmm. in Industrial Engineering and Operations Research. So I think we should talk about both of those and let people understand. So first of all, obviously, data science podcast, people are going to be interested in knowing what a BA in data science is all about. Mm -hmm. But when you came to Berkeley, did you know that this was what you wanted to study?
1: Absolutely not. I came into Berkeley undeclared. I was throwing around a lot of different ideas. I was thinking maybe economics or applied math was one thing I was really circling around. Um, In my freshman year, I sort of like happened into a data researching role at the D-Lab at Berkeley. So the D-Lab, like it's short for the data lab. It might sound like a, like a data science lab. It wasn't necessarily that. The D-Lab is primarily designed to help like social science researchers um, do data analysis, like to complement their reports. So it's like
0: you have right. like,
1: data professionals collaborating with like more humanities, social the social scientists.
0: science, people need lots of help. <laughs> need to get, get some adults in the room.
1: Uh, I probably didn't phrase them. it. For <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I guess it's kind of funny. Like from the beginning of my career, I was always sort of thinking about like how data and like writing can like mesh. Um, but yeah, so the cool. role was nothing fancy. I wasn't like necessarily like learning Python or R or anything. It was mostly like data collection and like having to think about data and like what format data should be in order to like be analyzed properly and like what just questions you would ask. But like, I so, like, found how, that really interesting.
0: Kind of how surveys are designed and how we should store the data. Like these things so, should be integers and these other things should be like,
1: yeah, uh, so Because, like, the nature of the D-Lab, the data that we were getting, like, it wasn't, like, what you're thinking of. It's not in CSV. Like, we would be getting, like, historical documents. And, like, that would be, like, read, Mm -hmm. like, people would read them and, like, tag them in certain ways or they'd have annotations. It's like, like, okay, how do you convert Mm -hmm. this annotations into data? So, like, normally Mm -hmm. there would be a data scientist that we'd we'd be working under. And we think, how Mm -hmm. can this best be, like, translated for a data analysis or a data visualization? Um, And I thought those... Yeah. A social
0: scientist comes in and circles a bunch of words on a bunch (laughs) of pages and then brings it to you and is like, I know there's something here, but I don't know how to like record this. Like, how do I? Yeah. How do I convert this into something that I can put into a spreadsheet or
1: something? Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably like not the fairest characterization. Like the social scientist is usually very
0: involved. I
1: I know. Yeah. I I'm, yeah, I'm too cautious. I love, I love all Uh, you social (laughs) scientists.
0: I'm just having having a bit of fun.
1: Yeah, ditto. Um, But yes, the data scientists and social scientists are usually leading project and like leading the researchers to like think about these questions and like, you know, think about what sort of questions can be answered with the information that we've been given. And I found those like challenges, I guess, like very interesting. I thought it was like sort of like a puzzle and like, I thought I was really good at it honestly. So I sort of like right then and there, I was like, oh, maybe I should look into data science. The problem was when I was a freshman, the data science department and the data science degree did not exist at Berkeley. So the closest analogs were like either computer science, statistics, or um, what I ended up choosing was industrial engineering and operations research. Um, I was really drawn to that because like, so the idea of industrial engineering and operations research is like essentially optimization. Like how can you optimize? Like processes, how can you optimize um, like shortest path? Basically, like it can be a, applied in a lot of different routes and industries. I can and imagine like, it
0: sounds yeah. hugely valuable to <laughs> almost any organization,
1: right? You know, so, it, not
0: just industrial processes, but commercial ones, and
1: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And yeah. as someone who like was like really confused and like didn't necessarily know, like even I knew I wanted to work with data, but I don't necessarily know where that will take me. Like IUR, as it's called. Um, seemed like it could lead me to a lot of different places. Um, So I ended up going with that degree. And then after my sophomore year, which was two years at Berkeley, the data science degree was announced. So then I was actually able to do both.
0: Nice. Very cool. So what do you do in a data science bachelor's degree? I guess at Mm -hmm. Berkeley specifically, but, you know, just kind of in general. So like What are, what's kind of like the foundational curriculum of a bachelor's in data science?
1: Yeah, so the data science department at Berkeley is really like the marriage of computer science and statistics. So like there's a, yeah, we have a couple of classes like within the data science department that are required, but like the vast majority of our classes are like taken outside of it, either in CS stats or like another department that's related to your concentration, which for me, again, was GIS. Um, so, like, we have this fantastic course at Berkeley called Data Eight. That's actually available to anyone. Like, even if you're not at Berkeley, you can take it online for free through EdX. So, I do Data highly eight. encourage that. Yes. Like the number eight. Yes. Yes. Look up Data Eight. You'll find it. Um, it's a introductory course to Python and statistics and computer science. It's like everything you need to start. Um, I. It's kind of funny. Like I, <laughs> even though that's the intro class that you should take. First, like I didn't end up taking it until like my senior year just because I needed it to qualify for the degree. Like, even though I knew a lot (laughs) of the stuff that was taught in the course, like I had to take it just to like, so yeah, I took the prereq after I had taken everything else, but that's just because of the wonky way in which the degree was approved after I had like already taken a lot of these courses. But yeah, data eight and then like foundational computer science, foundational statistics, and then with that, you're on your way to doing like uh, more upper division courses. So, for me, just because I was part of like that inaugural class, like I think I was the second class to graduate, um, we, there weren't many classes available when I was there. So, we would end up taking a lot of graduate courses or again, like mm. classes that were like tangentially related. But I was really lucky because I was in IOR, like there was quite a significant like overlap between like the two like tracks, right? So, I did, mm-hmm. like, in my IOR coursework, like, I learned a lot about, like, stochastic processes. I learned a lot about, like, optimization, nonlinear and linear. Like, I learned a lot about, like, um, there was a machine learning class that I had to take for IOR. Like, a lot of these algorithms that we use in machine learning, I, like, learned, like, how to derive them, like, in my IOR right. course. So, like, that informed a lot of, like, wow. the data science curriculum that actually wasn't necessarily there at Berkeley. Like, it was there, but it wasn't, like, part of the <laughs> data science right, track right, yet. Right. So, I think they're still, like, working out the kinks, but, like, I, I mean, I still really thought most of the classes I took there were worthwhile and there's just so much available to you. I think the most overwhelming part of it is like choosing which courses to take because there's so many right. different tracks you can go with it.
0: I am so jealous. I <laughs> wish I could go back in time and oh. be coming out of university with your education. That is such a cool curriculum. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, these are things that I kind of cobble together Year over year, on the side while I'm working, uh, to kind of have that background mm-hmm. sounds amazing. I think
1: one of the fantastic things about remote learning though is like now that the courses are online, like if the university permits it, they're really accessible to anyone. It's not just the students anymore. So like I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, I think we had to shut this down because it wasn't exactly legal. But like all of the students at like most of these top universities were like exchanging links with each other. There was like this massive spreadsheet where we could just like visit any <laughs> class. You could hop into a Zoom at like Princeton right. or like. Caltech, anywhere. And it was really interesting. Like, I I remember just like watching a couple lectures at other places, like um, how different approaches at different schools. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. (laughs)
0: There are a lot of amazing, yeah, like uh, university lectures, a lot of universities. It's not every course, but a lot of courses, the lecturer says, yeah, I'm happy for this to go up on YouTube or Mm -hmm. in an inexpensive or free like edX. That's what you mentioned, right? For the data eight, was that edX? Yeah, edX, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's such a Um,
1: great resource.
0: So EDX for you listeners out there. Um, And so a lot of what I know about deep learning and that is in my book, Deep Learning Illustrated, I got from YouTube lectures, from Mm -hmm. university lectures online. And we actually have uh, coming up next month, I'm interviewing professor Peter Abiel, who is at UC Berkeley and the way that I know him is he has on YouTube tons of deep reinforcement learning lectures. So he specializes in robotics and he's got these, this great um, entire course, many years of courses of deep reinforcement learning content. And I can't believe that he's gonna be on the show and I'm gonna to get to interview him anyway. But so yeah, um, I have kind of lost the point that I was <laughs> trying to make, but it is cool that so many of these resources are available online for people to learn. So people like me who, you know, I was already a professional working done my PhD when the term data science was coined. Mm -hmm. So obviously impossible for me to have a formal education in data science, but there are, as you say, so many cool free or very inexpensive resources out there for constantly learning. And it's not like the learning ever stops in data science, right? It's not like, oh, wow, because you have a degree in data science, you've got it all. There are some things like, you know, knowing how stochastic gradient descent works, Mm -hmm. uh, some mathematical concepts that won't change, but there's always new software libraries, new approaches. And so we just got to get used to it. You got to listen to things like the Super Data Science Podcast (laughs) uh, to know what's going on.
1: Yeah. And I think what Berkeley does really well is like early on, they instill you like, the skill of like reading documentation and like figuring out new libraries. So like, I think once you have like the foundational concepts of like knowing how to code, like what functions are usually built in, then like with that skill of like being able to read documentation and like knowing how to Google well, like you're really ready for almost anything I think.
0: Nice, I'm gonna go on and ask you a couple more uh, questions about your data science background. But before sure. we do that, I have a really important announcement for everyone, which is that I remember the name of that region in India where yoga is from and <laughs> Anima and Ankumar is from. It's uh, I'm probably gonna mispronounce it, but Mysore, M-Y-S-O-R-E? Uh, M-Y-S-O-R-E. Mysore. Mysore.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I told <laughs> you I pronounce it wrong.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um so okay, so the DLab, Lab uh, Berkeley mm-hmm. data researcher. Uh, experience was critical for you as somebody who came into your degree undeclared and that Mm -hmm. allowed you to figure out that you wanted to be going into this data science thing you had Mm -hmm. yeah you had to have this kind of interim degree um, Mm -hmm. this bachelor of science in industrial engineering and operations research which sounds like a really cool discipline hugely valuable in the world and then in your going into your third year this BA in data science comes out and you get that degree as well Mm -hmm. Um, so While you're pursuing this degree, you've had a number of really cool data science roles. So you were a business systems analyst intern at Intuit, which is a big software company. Yes, Um, they make QuickView. Is that right?
1: They make um, like financial services. So like they make financial. Yeah, so TurboTax is the one you're probably most. Oh,
0: TurboTax. But Yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: they also do Mint and QuickBooks is the other flagship service.
0: Oh yeah. Um, and then more recently, or maybe it it isn't something that you kind of recently specialized in, but it is something that it seems like you kind of specialized in, in at least the role titles mm-hmm. is you were a data visualization developer for the Berkeley political review and then a data visualization engineer at high George. So mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever had anyone on the show who specifically, like even in their, so certainly I've had data scientists on the show who have some expertise in visualizations, but I think you're Mm -hmm. the first to have it in their job title. So Mm -hmm. obviously like, you know, heavy expertise in that role. So what kinds of tools and techniques do you use in roles like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I guess I should start by saying like, at Intuit, like one of my big summer long projects was like redesigning like all of the most standard dashboards that like people in the finance department use mm-hmm. so like for that i ended up having to do like interviews with a lot of people who use these dashboards and figure out like what charts work like what metrics do they want blah 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 and like that sort of started me on this journey of data visualization because it like really got me thinking about like how do you best display the information not just like what information do we need to display if that makes sense um, totally. so after that work experience i took a course in data visualization theory at berkeley and like, was also involved with Berkeley Political Review, BPR, as you said, um, that honestly, like, it was important for me to see like how visualizations work alongside a story and like how you can complement like writing what and arguments it? with data. What is BPR? Berkeley Political Review is a yeah. political magazine at Berkeley. I believe they come out once a month. So they would pair us with writers. Um, the one that I worked with, was, a writer was writing about the Supreme court and like how it's like Mm -hmm. how the selection process is kind of random. So, um, I had made a nice like Tableau dashboard. I can send it your way if you'd like, um, that like analyzes the Supreme court justices that, um, role was like important for me in thinking about how visualizations work with stories, but also like that department of like interactives was like sort of fledgling when I arrived. So like, I can't say I did a lot while I was there, but I did help like, Lay the foundation, I think, for that to like grow into what it is now. Like after I left, um, but yeah, after BPR, I did so. Not after I joined High George last August during the pandemic. Um, and Hi George is a startup; they do interactive digital visualizations for newspapers, which for local newspapers, which like may not have the in-house mm-hmm. team to like build these like very pretty interactive <sighs> charts that you see in the New York Times, right?
0: All of these roles, they're, <laughs> they dovetail together so nicely. So you yeah. have this interest in journalism even before really the data science. Mm-hmm. But throughout, whether we're talking about the Berkeley Political Review or even High George, which I didn't realize that they were involved in that space as well, yeah. you're creating visualizations that can be used in journalism that... They, Again, bringing you back to that idea of putting a face to data, like making data accessible and understandable. Coming up with clever ways, and you see this in your YouTube channel. Coming up with clever Mm -hmm. ways of um, you know taking a complex concept but breaking it down into data visualization structures that people can understand at a glance and get a lot of information from. That's so cool. Anyway, I'll let you talk about hi, George.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I mean (laughs) hi, George. Like as a service, obviously became very important because of COVID and like people were. Sort of refreshing, like looking at like these charts and saying like, okay, how many new cases are today? How many new deaths are uh, there today? Like what is the hospitalization capacity? And now it's like more so like, what is the vaccination rates? So like people got very used to like reading and understanding charts. Right. So it, it meant that I got to be like a little more creative and like not necessarily do like basic bar charts, but, um, yeah. So my work at High George was we used, um, Angular and D3, mm-hmm. which is a G3. JavaScript library. Um, to like build these like reusable data visualization components that like our um, data engineering team can just plug in different like data sources and like the visualizations would like appear so the challenge for me there was actually like designing visualizations that work no matter what the data is like will look pretty no matter what the spread of data is and like what so you'd always have to be thinking of these cases like okay if the access Is, like, this long, like, will it look squash or blah, blah, blah. So it was actually really interesting. Like, it was, I was more so doing, like, front-end web development and data visualization there. But, like, I did have to put on my data science hat on, like, a couple of times because I would have to, like, think about, like, what the edge cases of the data are and, like, would have to, like, create my own dummy data sets and, like, test these visualizations and make sure they make sense and are, like, legible. Um, So I think that was interesting work experience from that perspective of, like, thinking, like, not only is it communicable, but also does it look pretty, (laughs) which is not necessarily something we always think about as data scientists, but it's probably like something
0: we should think about. Totally, (laughs) I agree. Nice, it sounds like such a useful specialization, and I'm glad that we have you to kind of walk us through how that works. Mm -hmm. Um, It sounds clear that this kind of front end development aspect becomes really important um, when you're doing data visualizations in production Um, like you have been in these roles. So um, the JavaScript frameworks make sense, Angular, D3, um, I don't know, anything else? Any other particular tools and techniques that are like kind of interesting or that you use a lot in these kind of data viz engineering roles?
1: Yeah, I mean, so like D3 is like great because it's super flexible. Like you can do anything with it, right? Like if you can like think of an idea in your head, like you can basically draw it using JavaScript. Um, But I think like for most of us, like, the visualization libraries that we end up using are like Matplotlib, like GGplot, Seaborn, those types of things. So like more so than like the tools, like I would really just emphasize like learning, like data visualization and like what works with certain types of data and what doesn't. And I think like a lot of us intuitively know that, like, oh, categorical data is like for like, bar charts and blah, blah blah like numerical data right. like line charts like like a lot of this like we intuitively know but like there are certain things you can do that just make it that much more comprehensible like either like adding a slight annotation adding like a dashed line that marks the threshold like labeling is so important um, yeah and there's like tons of resources I really like d3graphgallery.com like even mm-hmm. though it's more geared towards d3 I think the author has also has one for R and like learning how to build like really beautiful visualizations in R and is working on one for Python as well. So like, I would keep an eye out for that. But like, honestly, just like looking at those different charts and like seeing what makes certain things pretty, like helped me a lot, like not just in my data visualization work, but also like in my data science work and like in the reports that I end up presenting to people.
0: Nice. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. I was about to ask, you read my mind. I was like, do you have a resource for us to be doing this? Yeah. The D3 GAF Gallery d3graphgallery.com. And, yeah, I think there's, yeah, there's well.
1: hyphens between it. It's like
0: d3-graph-gallery.
1: You can find it. <laughs>
0: can look it up, and I'm, I'm sure uh, Ivana, our show manager, will find it on mm-hmm. the internet and put it in the show notes. Um, all right. So all of this journey has led you now to a point where you're starting your full-time, your first full-time job in data science. So we're recording early July, but this episode will be out early August. So you might have started by then in your role at Thermo Fisher Scientific, which is a giant global company. And specifically, you're going to be starting in their data science leadership development program. So yeah. tell us a bit about the company, as well as this program.
1: Yeah, I mean, the company is involved in a lot of different like, things. I think most people like are probably familiar with the name because they've seen it in life their science equipment in like high school lab or college labs, like right. they're involved in a lot of like research pieces, but also very relevant for the time we're in right now, they develop a lot of like reagents for like biologists doing research and like specifically mm-hmm. we're involved, I believe in the development of the Pfizer vaccine for COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, they sort of have their hands in a lot of different plots, but I think like I'm more interested in discussing the leadership development program. Cause I think it's such a like cool concept and I think like there should be more of them out there. So yeah. it's, um, it's a rotation based program. I am spending one year in one office and one year in the next. I don't know if I should necessarily say where I'll be. Yeah. I don't think I'm comfortable saying where I'll be, but one year in like one office and one year in the next. And like the idea is that you're rotating between like different roles as a data scientist, so you can like see where your skills like align and like where you'd want to be like starting full time after those two right. years are up. that is cool. Um, so Yeah, it's like a nice bridge between college and like full time because you still have like that mentorship and you're still like in a learning mindset, which I think is true for like most early careers, but this just makes it that much more explicit because there's the idea that you're like stepping into like a new role every few months and like you're learning the ropes of like what it means to be like a data engineer, what it means to be a data scientist, what it means to be a data analyst, and like not just like the specific roles but like also within like different functions like maybe you're on like the consumer facing the side or maybe you're like more in research um yeah so i'm just excited all around to be like experiencing like so many different things in such a short time frame i think it's like it'll be really good
0: it sounds like a great program and no doubt not only getting exposure to different kinds of industries like you're saying like you know commercial applications industrial applications. Um, mm-hmm. Or, you know, data analytics, data visualization, modeling, not only that kind of stuff, but also like the culture of the firm and which maybe even yes. specific people that you're like, oh, man, that group was awesome. I definitely you want to work with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you actually start in the role full time in the kind of like a specific role, that whatever you decide on, mm-hmm. um, you will you'll have a better understanding of the whole organization. And I'm sure that creates opportunities for collaboration. It just seems like such a great idea this program.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I I think you, yeah. Once I'm in that full-time role, like having that connections, like not only in other offices, but like across the country in like various places. Cause like even like they'll only be in like two offices mainly, like I think they've made it a point that I should be in contact with people like across the country. And like, maybe I, Maybe I'm here in New York, but maybe I'll want to go into like Iowa for after graduating. Those are like two arbitrary locations, but yeah, I don't <laughs> know. I think it's <laughs> you get to experience a lot, and which is good for the age I'm in right now.
0: I'm sure everyone is queuing up to be in Iowa. That's uh, that's <laughs> going to be the office that's going to be everyone's going to be lining up for. Um, so, all right, this is super cool. I've loved getting to know. Mm-hmm about your journey here. I think it's so interesting. I think that this kind of general um, philosophy of putting a face to data and bringing that out to the public through your YouTube channel, your writing, which we didn't even talk about, but (laughs) um, related to your YouTube posts, you also uh, publish on Towards Data Science, uh, which is a blog. Um, So really amazing. When you retire, many decades from now, (laughs) what are you hoping to look back on do you have any idea
1: oh man that is such a hard question i (laughs) my dad um is also someone who like me is interested in a lot of different avenues he like studied physics he got a phd in computer science he was a researcher a professor and he eventually ended up retiring into teaching high school and that's something that like i always saw myself doing like Maybe not teaching, but like retiring into like some sort of like mentorship role. So, like, even or even like before then, like, I always want to be the type of person who is like teaching or like sharing with people. Um, and like, maybe I don't know, maybe the YouTube channel can become that years from now once I have like more things in my belt to share. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think like being able to teach and like pass on what you've learned and like, however many years that is, is like really important. So, maybe not something to look back on, but something to look forward to when I retire.
0: That was a really great answer. Um, All right, I really only have one last question for you, Anjali, which is something I ask all the guests on the show. Mm -hmm. Do you have a book recommendation for us? I
1: do, I've been thinking about this ever since you asked me before we started taping. (laughs) So I have been getting into fantasy. As I mentioned to you, I've been reading a lot. I think it's really important to have hobbies that aren't always like geared towards like being productive and like wanting to be the best worker you can be, even though that's important. Like, I think you should take steps away from that at times. And like reading for me is that it's how I sleep at night. So I don't necessarily want to be thinking about work when I'm about to sleep. So anyways, I've been reading a lot of fantasy. The book that I just read maybe three months ago is one of the best books that I've read in my life. I've given it to four people. Now it's called The Sword of Kaigen. It is sort
0: of Kaigen. How do we spell Kaigen?
1: K-A-I-G-E-N. It is an Asian inspired fantasy. So it's like, I think especially if you're the child of immigrants, you'll connect a lot to a lot Mm. of themes in it. It's like really unlike anything I've ever read because it's got two protagonists. One is an 11 year old child and the other is his mother. So it's like a very mature story on like family and like, parenthood and you just get these like two wildly different perspectives. It's very, um, sad. <laughs> I will give you a warning. It, it might like put you out of commission for a few days where you're like, wow. I, this
0: oh but, uh,
1: <laughs> it, I can't recommend it enough. It's so, it's so good. And I think it will change a lot. Of, I think it will just like change how you see a lot of this world.
0: honestly. It's a great recommendation. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that. Um, mm-hmm. And it's so nice to be able to hear you kind of speak about it uh, so passionately, like why you'd be interested in this genre and everything. So thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we have a lot of listeners now going out and looking that book up. (laughs) I hope so. so. She's a
1: self-published author, so she doesn't get a lot of, uh, yeah, it's like kind of like an underground story. So I really do recommend it.
0: Wow. (laughs) Um, It just gets cooler and cooler. So. How can people follow you? Uh, what do you recommend? So obviously your YouTube channel, Vastava, yes. we yeah. will definitely put that in the show notes. And that's probably your primary way for people to stay in touch. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, anything else?
1: Yeah, youtube.com slash Vastava. Right after this is done recording, I will update my LinkedIn profile. So <laughs> it's a bit more polished. Uh, you can feel free to connect with me on there, Anjali Vastava um i do have a twitter i'm not as active as i would like to be on there but you can find me on there also vastava underscore (laughs) on twitter because the name was taken i guess
0: ah (laughs) um brilliant all right i'll be sure to include all those the youtube channel linkedin url and twitter handle we'll get those into the show notes Thank you so much Anjali. This has been so much fun and hopefully we can have you on again sometime in the future to give us an update on how your data science career is developing.
1: Sure, I'd love that.
0: Sounds great. All right Anjali, have a wonderful day and I'll catch you soon.
1: Thank you, you too.
0: that was so much fun filming that episode with Anjali, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. She's wise well beyond her years and is clearly extremely intelligent, creative, and ambitious. No doubt, Anjali has a brilliant career ahead, not only as a data scientist, but also as a broadly appealing data science communicator. In today's episode, Anjali discussed the importance of making data analytics and data science approachable and valuable to lay people. She talked about UC Berkeley's Data 8 Foundations of Data Science curriculum that is available free online to anyone anywhere in the world. She talked about how we can create reusable interactive data visualization components with the Angular and D3 JavaScript libraries. And she let us know about the D3 Graph Gallery that you can refer to to develop a better data visualization practice, whether you use D3 or some other graphics library. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, and the URL for Anjali's YouTube channel and LinkedIn profile, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com 493. That's superdatascience.com 493. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd of course greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app, or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel where we have a video version of this episode. To let me know your thoughts on this episode directly, please do feel welcome to add me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tag me in a post to let me know your thoughts on this episode. Your feedback is invaluable for figuring out what topics we should cover next. Since this is a free podcast, if you're looking for a free way to help me out, I'd be very grateful if you left a rating of my book, Deep Learning Illustrated on Amazon or Goodreads, Gave some videos on my YouTube channel a thumbs up, or subscribe to my free content-rich newsletter on johncrone.com. To support the Super Data Science company that kindly funds the management, editing, and production of this podcast without any annoying third-party ads, you could create a free login to their learning platform at superdatascience.com. You could check out the 99 days to your first data science job challenge at superdatascience.com slash challenge, or you could consider buying a usually really inexpensive udemy course published by ligency an affiliate of super data science such as my mathematical foundations of machine learning course all right thanks to ivana Hyman, mario and jp on the super data science team for managing and producing another amazing episode today keep on rocking it out there folks and i'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the super data science podcast with you very soon